are this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter. If you want to, uh, if you have your Bibles with you and want to look there in uh, the Scriptures, we'll be reading from that in just a moment. Uh, before I get there, a couple things I, I didn't announce at the beginning, but I want to share with you. Uh, one, as it is listed in your bulletin, but I just want you to take note of the um, Holy Week schedule. Next weekend begins Holy Week and begins with Palm Sunday. And so we've got a lot of things that will be going on. So just want you to, to kind of be aware. Next Saturday and Sunday, we'll have uh, worship services. Uh, this is, if you're kind of new with us, twice a year, usually Palm Sunday and then before Christmas, we have uh, Easter cantatas that our choir prepares and brings to us as kind of a, the part, the main lead of, of worship. So that means that uh, next week at 7 o'clock on Saturday night will be a special worship service. It'll be our Easter cantata that you're invited to. And then Sunday morning we'll have our Easter cantata at 8.15 and 11.11. So there's three opportunities to come to that. At 9.45 we will have our normal contemporary service. So nothing changes in the order of worship, but that's all the Palm Sunday. And then after the 11 o'clock service out on the lawn... We're going to have an Easter egg hunt for the kids. We're going to have a church cookout, and you are invited to. And that's for everybody. You don't have to have kids or grandkids that are out there hunting eggs. That's a church family gathering. So please feel free to come and be a part of that. Uh, then during Holy Week, we'll have Monday, Thursday services here, communion service on Thursday night at noon on Friday. Good Friday, we do worship Stations of the Cross with St. Francis, our friends right across the street. And uh, you're invited to be a part of that. We participate together with them. And we are looking for some readers. If you're wanting to read part of the liturgy as we move around to the stations, call the church office and let them know. And then, um, and then lastly will be our Easter services. We'll have a sunrise service at 6.30 at the pavilion and then our three normal worship services, worship times anyway. So anyway, just want you to be aware of that as far as what's coming up. And then the other thing I want to, uh, to just make you aware of is that the next service... If you go into the gathering place, you see it's kind of set up for this. Uh, it's listed in your bulletin. The next service, we're going to have 11 young people, 11 of our youth that will be joining the church that have gone through confirmation. And so we're very excited about that. Wonderful celebration. I want to thank you for your continued support of the youth group. Those of you that went last week to the pancake breakfast that they did, uh, the youth raised over $1,400 for camp for that. So uh, that is fantastic. So that's really uh, certainly applause for them for the hard work those young, young people did, but also for each of you for your support of them. You have been wonderful. So anyway, so that's uh, just to kind of let you know some stuff happening. Now, moving to our scripture today, Matthew 16. We're in this series as we have been for this, this season of Lent called You're Invited. We've looked at the unique invitations that Jesus gives. Come and see. Follow go fishing. This week, the, the invitation pivots a little bit. It, it turns and it, it becomes much more demanding of us than any of the previous invitations that Jesus has given. All of these invitations sum up what the follow invitation means. And you'll hear that again echoed in the scripture. But this is Matthew 16 is, is a portion of the scripture in which the gospels pivot this is a, a shifting in the focus in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Prior to Matthew 16, Jesus has been about ministering to the crowds and proclaiming to large groups of people, all who would come and hear what he had to say and see what he could do. In Matthew 16, he begins to, to circle the wagons, if you will. 
He begins to call tighter into the circle those disciples and those who are closest to him. And he begins to prepare them in very specific and unique ways for what is to come. This is when he begins to really set his sights on Jerusalem and on what for him will be his, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And so just prior to the verses I'm going to read here in Matthew 16 is, is this famous encounter where Jesus asks his disciples there, they're in Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do you say that I am? And the scriptures record that Peter announced, you are the Messiah, the promised one. And Jesus commends him for the spiritual wisdom that God had given him to see that and announces his position as the rock on which the church would be built. But, but it begins to, to shift things. And, and this is where Jesus continues with that. And, and the words are a challenge for us. And so I invite you again to either follow along or listen to the continuation of, of that encounter uh, in Matthew 16, verse 21 says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised from the, to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and proclaimed, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human beings. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory and with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Friends, sisters, we ask God's blessing here on the reading of His Word. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that you'd help us in these moments to, to hear, to hear the word that speaks to us, the challenge that you speak into our lives, and to be moved, be moved according to your will, one step closer in faith, one step closer in faithfulness. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. I uh, was watching... History Channel the other day, and they had a, a show on the um, uprising in the Roman Empire about not even quite a hundred years before the, the life of, and death of Jesus, but it was, uh, it was an uprising that may be familiar, the name may be familiar, it was, it was the uprising of Spartacus, and uh, I think it was years ago, Kurt Douglas that was in a movie, about, and I've never seen the movie, so I don't know how historically accurate it is, but, but it was talking about the, the events uh, of this slave uprising that it was in the, the Roman Empire of Spartacus, and it really grew out of, it was birthed by uh, gladiators, 
slaves that you know the Romans they would they would capture and some slaves would be sent um, to into the the gladiatorial arena and there's movies that have been made about this you're probably familiar with that but but it was basically putting people in front of an audience so that a group of Roman citizens could be entertained by their death it was glorified death it was violence of, of the um, extreme kind, and Spartacus revolted, revolted against this and, and the uprising. And, and, you know, the story of his life and, and what happened is fascinating. But what really stuck me was this fascination and just the, the nature of violence that was deemed to be entertaining for, for a whole group of people. And, and it's interesting because in the coliseums and the arenas where these games would take place, these weren't, um, this wasn't the dredges of society. This wasn't just a, a certain class of people. This was all Roman society from the upper class to the middle class to the lower class that would come together and they would come into arena and they would come to be entertained watching somebody die. And that just struck me as very demented. And that would play itself out later after the life of Jesus when those who became Christians in the Roman emperor from time to time would be thrown into the arenas by emperors like Claudius and Nero who would again gather crowds to be entertained by the death of Christians who would be fed to the lions and slaves and others. And, and it just... It spoke to me and it reminded me, because again, this is surrounding. This is the period of time. This is the world that Jesus was born into. He was born into the Roman Empire, even though he was in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, in Galilee. It was controlled by the, by the Roman Empire. And so this is the world he knew. This is the reality that, that he would have been familiar with. And this kind of violence, and, and it's easy for us to, to kind of be judgmental about that, but the reality is we're still a people that are permeated by, by violence. We see it all around us. We, we see it on the news every day. They say, we're entertained by it, which is a whole different sermon. But, you know, they say by the time a young person, a child, grows to adulthood, he or she has seen 8,000 deaths through um, media, through television, through movies. And it's just this, and, and I just kind of fixated, as I sometimes do, on this reality of, of violence. Now, now, most of us, that's not characteristic of our lives. I look around at you. I don't see anybody that I particularly deem to be a violent person. I don't think you are. But the reality is we understand it. And, and as I started to, to think about this kind of violence, I, I thought, you know, violence in and of itself, it is one of the, it may be the pinnacle of selfishness. Violence is as selfish an act as you can perpetrate on another person. Because violence says, as it did in the times of the gladiators, as it did in the times of those Christians that were thrown to the lions, it says that there's a group of people that are willing to say that my entertainment supersedes your worth as a human being. That I want to come into an arena and I want to be entertained, my needs, even if it costs you your life. Even if it costs everything you have. Violence, uh, when somebody perpetrates violence and, and they rob and they injure or they kill another human being, what they're saying is, what I want, my desire to have what you have, my desire to take from you what is yours, supersedes your right to have it, supersedes your value, your worth as a person. So I will do whatever it takes, even to the point of inflicting bodily harm or death upon you, because I want what you have. And it is the ultimate act 
of selfishness. I want to be heard. My voice is important. My opinion matters. And I will be heard no matter what the cost, even if it means inflicting and forcing that upon others. It is as selfish an act as I can imagine. Now, why is that significant? Here in this part of the scripture, in this understanding of this next invitation of Jesus, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that he is going to meet violence straight on. That Jesus is going willingly to Jerusalem, knowing that in Jerusalem he is going to face arrest. He is going to face persecution. He is going to be bound, beaten, and executed by those who live according to that selfish mandate that say we are so opposed to what Jesus has to say that our desires supersede his value, and we will kill those who speak, act, behave, and do in ways that we find offensive or contrary to our values. The ultimate act of violence. He's preparing his disciples to say, I'm going to meet that. In fact, Peter, Peter, who was just praised for his faith, here it's such a quick turn as Jesus rebukes him because Peter can't comprehend that. He can't imagine that Jesus is going to face that. In fact, he says, no way. And basically what Peter says is, we're never going to let that happen to you, Jesus. Peter gets very cocky at times. Peter, who would later on deny he even knows Jesus. But, but Jesus is facing headlong this selfish reality of the world that we continue to experience, where violence, and violence is the extreme case of a, of a selfish mindset that we all struggle with, which says that my needs, my desires, my wants come first. Now again, most of us go, don't go to the extreme of violence, but Jesus is setting up the, the, the extreme case because Jesus is about to remind his disciples, as he reminds us, that his invitation to us is to the opposite extreme. It's a contrast of extremes. We're not wrestling with the middle here, and the middle is where most of us find ourselves. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to meet violence and death, but I want to call you not to that, but to something entirely different. And so as he continues to reiterate this invitation that we talked about in which he says, come and follow me, Jesus gives a, a deeper understanding of what following him looks like. And it is the hardest invitation that he gives in the Scriptures. It is the most challenging invitation that Jesus gives in the Scriptures. And it's the invitation that would cost him most of his followers. It's the invitation that the Gospels tell us that when the people, when the crowds, when the masses heard this, when the thousands who came to see his miracles and hear his teachings, that when they heard this part of it, oh, not so much. We'll go find the next teacher because this is getting hard. I want you to hear again what Jesus says. Verse 24 is where we're focusing. He says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple to follow me as he's going to say, this is what is required of you. You must deny yourself and take up your cross. There's the fourth invitation. Deny yourself and take up your cross. What Jesus is saying is this is going to demand more of you than you ever thought possible. Jesus says, first you lay down, then you take up. Now let's talk about what he says you lay down. He says, deny yourself. The word there, 
the, the meaning behind the Greek there is to put distance between. In fact, it's the same kind of word that the, the gospel writers use when they describe Peter denying Jesus in the, the, the night before his crucifixion. Jesus, or Peter, put distance between himself and Jesus. Remember, I don't know him. I don't know what you're saying. I don't know this guy. I'm not his follower. To the point of becoming angry at those who would say that he was one of Jesus' followers. To put distance between. What Jesus is saying is that we put distance between ourselves, our own motivations, our own desires, the, 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 the tendency that we have to be self-centered. Again, going back to the extreme example, again, violence as the most extreme case of selfishness. Jesus is saying to be my follower, this is what you lay down. You lay down that selfishness. You lay that down that desire to be me first oriented. And while most of us, hopefully all of us, are not inclined to violence, all of us are inclined to me first attitudes. Every one of us struggles. I'm sure of this. If you don't think you do, come tell me your story because I really want to hear it. We are all inclined to me first attitudes that seek first my comfort, my well-being, what I desire, what I want. We live in a culture that is saturated, and we are saturated with that message. You deserve it. You're worthy of it. You've earned it. And so we become enculturated with a me first attitude, but Jesus makes no bones about it. To follow me, you lay down the me-first attitude. You distance yourself from the mindset that says, you're you're number one, and I take care of myself first. You deny yourself, and you take on the example of Jesus, who always lived into a others first. Now, most of us do this in aspects of our lives. If you have children, and you are... Anywhere close to a good parent, and I know all of you are, then you know what it's like to say, I'm going to put the needs of another person above mine. That's the heartbeat of being a mother, father, grandfather, grandmother, caregiver. There's a lot of examples. We we experience that in some places of our lives, uh, deep friendships, family relationships. I mean, people in your life who you know, you love so deeply, you care so much about, that you would put their needs above yours. You would put even their life above yours. We, we know that. We've experienced that in some point, I hope. Jesus says, to be my disciple, that becomes the character of your life. The me second attitude. The idea that says, I desire the well-being of others and the care of others and the interests of others above myself. And let's face it, friends, that is hard. That is not a natural instinct that we fall into. But Jesus says you lay it down. You lay it down. That's You lay yourself down. I was uh, reading again a story, an example, uh, a preacher by the name of Fred Craddock. That name probably is not familiar to most of you, maybe a few. Fred Craddock is the the name in preaching for, for pastors and seminarians. Almost everybody, pastor that I know that has gone through seminary, that's taken a course in preaching, has read, listened to, uh, dissected Fred Craddock because he's the, the foremost voice, or was. He passed away just a few weeks ago. 
Uh, he was a teacher at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta, a world-renowned speaker. And, and so in one of his sermons, uh, Fred Craddock talks about this giving of ourselves. But he says, we have a tendency to glorify it. We have a tendency to misunderstand it. And this is the example he gave, and it really, really stuck with me. I'm going to pull this table out. But he said, he said, most of us think of it as if, like, like it was a $1,000 bill. Like we had a $1,000 bill. This is not a $1,000 bill, just for the record. Um, You've got to use your imagination. I was shocked when I opened my wallet this morning. I didn't have a $1,000 bill in there. But, um, but, but you get the point. But, but it represents all that you have, all that you are, all that you can give. And what we imagine is that in one glorious moment, in one glorious declaration before Jesus, we lay it down. It's yours, Jesus. I give it. And, and that may be the heart, but that's not the way that it gets lived out. Fred Craddock would be, says it would be like that $1,000 bill being given to you in quarters. And we give that away in increments. What he says is that when we deny ourselves, when we put the needs of others before ourselves, when we live out the way of Jesus, it's not one grand Give it all up. But a lot of times it's lived out quarter at a time. It's lived out 50 cents at a time. What he says is it's lived out in the ways in which we are given moments in which we put the needs of others above ourselves, that we give of ourselves. It's the moment when the kid in the neighborhood that drives you nuts runs up because he wants to tell you a story. And rather than pushing him away or finding an excuse to get out of the situation, you stand and you listen to his story. 25 cents at a time. It's the moment when you walk out of Subway and you've got yourself a sandwich because you're ready for lunch and you encounter the guy or the girl who has none, who is hungry. You give it up. It's the moments that God calls us into. The moments, not the glorious, earth-shattering, crowd-pleasing, mass-impressive displays. It's the quarter here, the quarter there, that God invites us to invest in others, to take the back seat. Now, the beauty of this is, and this is for another time, is that in Christ, this is what we know. This well, this bank, doesn't run dry. See, that's the problem. Most of us worry like our bank accounts. We're worried that if we spend too much, it's going to be gone. But not, not here. Jesus constantly refills this. It's, not an it's an inexhaustible supply in Christ. But we're called to deny ourselves, to give it a little at a time. And it challenges us. Because I think in some ways it would be easier to do it all at once, just lay it all off. But to constantly live into it day to day to day, that is hard. And that is demanding. And I hope this illustration haunts you because it haunts me. And I hate it. I hate it when God uses my words against me. And he does it all the time. I was this week 
as I'm preparing the sermon and I'd read the story and I'm thinking about how I'm going to do this, I had, I had an afternoon that it was a rare thing. I didn't have anything scheduled. I had some stuff I needed to do, some stuff I needed to do at home, some things I needed to work on. I didn't have anything scheduled. And all of a sudden, I got word there was a couple opportunities for me. And I'll just call them opportunities for me to, to, to kind of respond to some things. And I didn't want to. Because I had some me time. And I don't get a lot of me time. And I wanted that for me. And dadgummit, I'm not lying to you if God didn't say, hey, aren't you talking about quarters on Sunday? <laughs> so? Uh, here's some quarters. And I did. And you know what? I'm not, it doesn't matter what it was. It was nothing that would impress you. It's nothing that you would even think anything of. But I knew that God was challenging me to put down a few quarters. What I know is that when I left those experiences, I was more blessed than I think the people that I spent those moments with. Deny yourself. It is a hard thing to do, to lay that down. The second part of that is even harder because Jesus says lay down, but then he gives us an invitation to take up. And oh yeah, here's what you take up. Your cross. Now, problem with that is we've watered that down. We have absolutely watered that down. Because we don't live in a world, well, we live in a world, we don't live in a culture, we don't live in a society that we come to church on a Sunday and you're worried that somebody's going to kill you for being a Christian. With those rare, rare, really kind of out there situations, that's not the reality we live in. So when we talk about taking up our cross, we think, well, you know what, Ugh, I got a cranky spouse this week, that's my cross to bear. My kids are misbehaving. Nah, that's my cross to bear. Ah, you know what? I don't have as much money in the bank as I wish I did. That's my cross to bear. No, I'm not saying those aren't challenges. But that ain't your cross. Jesus' disciples knew what the cross meant. It meant death. Jesus says, take up your cross. He's saying that nothing comes before Obedience. Nothing comes before this call. This is the part of the, the sermon that most people are like, whoo now we've gone too far, Jesus. I'm good with the, be a little selfish, selfless. You know what, I'm good with kind of following at a distance, but now you're asking for everything. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I am. Because when the cross was talked about, they knew, they think in the lifetime of Jesus that the Romans executed 30,000 people by crucifixion. Years before Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, one of the, the Roman generals uh, squelched, and in, in the, the death of Herod the Great, there was an uprising. And a hundred Jews who had rose up against the Romans were crucified, and they were nailed to the crosses on the road leading into Caesarea Philippi. A few years before that, one of the Roman um, consuls crucified 800 Jews outside Jerusalem, and their crosses would line the roads going into the city. They knew what the cross meant. Jesus says, nothing comes before this call. No conditions that come before faithfulness. And that is a demanding call. When we hear that, what Jesus says to us is nothing comes before faithfulness. Now, we're fortunate. We don't live in a society that our lives are in danger for being Christians. But you know what? Go to Mosul in the Middle East. Go to Nigeria. Go to North Korea. 
Go to parts of China. Go to Somalia. Find brothers and sisters in Christ and ask them if they know what it means when Jesus says, you got to be willing to take up your cross to follow me. Because they sure do. Christians are dying all around the world for being Christians. And yet they won't renounce Jesus. Wow. That's an example most of us could be inspired by. Because they've learned firsthand what Jesus invites us to learn is that he meets us in the challenging places and blesses us through faithfulness in ways we can't begin to imagine. Jesus says to us, yeah, you will face brokenness. You will. But I'm in those broken places. And in those broken places, you will be made strong again in my spirit. Jesus says you will have challenges and obstacles. But by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you, your faithfulness and your willingness to lay it all down, you will find wisdom and strength to meet those challenges in places you never thought possible. Jesus says, yeah, people will let you down. He knew this firsthand. Your friends will let you down. Your family will let you down. But Jesus says, I will be your rock. I will be your refuge. And you will find strength and security in me that you can find no place else. The challenge for us, we are all answering an invitation. Understand that you are answering an invitation. It's just a matter of which one. Jesus invites us to a countercultural way, opposite the ways of the world. And it is hard and it is difficult. And Jesus reminds us, though, that you are not going to find ultimate hope. You are not going to find strength. You are not going to find peace. You are not going to find grace in the fringes of the comforts of this world but you will find that in the challenging places where God is. Where God is. The question is, are we willing to hear that invitation? It is hard. Anybody ever stand up before you and tell you that following Jesus is easy? Run away because they're lying to you. They're absolutely lying to you. It is hard. And it's blessed. And it's powerful. And it's a cup that God continues to pour into and fill because he calls us to a place where he is, where he has gone, and where he meets us. The places of laying down ourselves and taking up our cross. Brothers and sisters, hear his invitation. And I pray for all of us. Maybe we're not ready to make that response yet, but I pray that we can make one step closer because that's where Jesus is. Let us pray. Gracious God, oh gosh, be with us because this is hard. I mean, if we're honest, this, this invitation, deny ourselves. That's not who we are. That's not our nature. Take up our cross to, to step into the uncomfortable and challenging places. Lord, that is hard. But that's where you are. That's who you are. Help us to hear that invitation that you give over and over and over again. And help us to respond in faithfulness. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.